Blog Talk Radio. and Science Radio, and Jan and I have a very special guest for you today. The title of the show is Facial Recognition Technologies with FBI Senior Photographic Technologist Richard Vorder Brugge. Now, Richard is a senior photographic technologist at the FBI, and he's kind of responsible for overseeing science and technology developments in their imaging services. Pretty big job. His education includes engineering and and geological sciences from Brown University, and he has been with the FBI since 1995, so he has a long history there. He's also chaired the Scientific Working Group on Imaging Technology, as well as the Facial Identification Scientific Working Group. Um, he's, a, he's a fellow at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences and many, many other things, and uh, as our listeners know, his complete bio and other information will be on our websites. So, Richard, I want to welcome you to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's, it's so great to have you here. We appreciate you taking the time. Um, I'm going to start things off, but Doug mentioned a moment ago that you have a Ph.D. in geological sciences. So how did that translate into you being a senior photographic technologist for the FBI? Well, I'll tell you, Jan, that I've, I've actually been answering the question of what does my geology background have to do with being a photographic technologist almost practically since the day I started at the Bureau. Uh, I actually had a, I had a, um, an attorney who didn't necessarily like the answers I was going to give in court kind of challenge me and say, what on earth does geology have to do with photographic technology and the analysis you do at the FBI? So I've had, I've had decades to prepare to answer that question. So, so um, when I was working on geology, I did a lot of satellite-based or aerial-type geology. And in fact, my field area was the planet Venus. Uh, I didn't actually get a chance to go there, uh, but I was I was analyzing radar images of the surface of Venus, and Venus is very uh, interesting from the standpoint of geology in that it's the only other body in our solar system that has folded mountain belts that are like the folded mountain belts we have here on Earth. So the Appalachian Mountains, the Rocky Mountains, the Himalayan Mountains, those are all formed through plate tectonics. And the way that those mountain belts are compressed together leaves a very interesting structure uh, that ends up being very, very similar to what mountain belts on the planet Venus look like. And so I was using uh, radar images in my graduate studies back in the 80s and, and early 90s to analyze these folded mountain belts, look at their structure, 
And I was doing a lot of image processing because I needed to see what sort of details those images actually contained. You know, were there breaks in the mountains? How did they merge? How did they separate? And so, so this is back in the days of really big, you know, computers that were that took up entire rooms to process photographs. And I did a lot of image processing with that. Another aspect of that was I was measuring them. Uh, you can tell a lot about what's underneath the surface of a planet by measuring the features that are on top of the surface. So the, the degree to which mountain belts uh, form at a regular spacing uh, actually correlates to the thickness of the surface that's folding. And so I had to do measurements from those images. Um, finally, I was comparing the physical attributes of those mountains on Venus with the physical attributes of mountains on the Earth to see what sort of similarities and differences that there were. And so those, those three things, uh, performing image processing in order to be able to see more details and measuring things, seeing how far apart they are or how tall something is, and then comparing, are they the same, are they different, seeing if there are similarities or difference. All of those things are aspects of the job that I perform as a photographic technologist when I'm conducting analysis of things like closed circuit television videos or, or photographs that are acquired in the course of an investigation. You know, we frequently have photographs that have shadows in them, and we may want to see what's in those shadows. Uh, you might have an evidentiary photograph, say, taken at a crime scene. Excuse me, and, and there's a shadow that, that you might actually enhance that shadow and see, hey, there's a footprint over there. Um, likewise, we have uh, get bank robbery uh, uh, surveillance photos that show the bank robber, and we want to know how tall he is or tall, how tall she is. So we have to determine what are the measurements that we need and, and how can we determine what that height is. And then finally, and the subject of our discussion today is, is about facial recognition and facial identification. Um, we frequently have to say, you know, are there similarities between the suspect whose photo we have and the person, the subject of interest at the crime uh, in the surveillance image? Is that person the same person? or, or Quite frequently, are they wearing the same clothes that we've recovered from a suspect's um, uh, closet, say, or, or buried in their backyard if they're trying to hide the evidence? So all three of those things, you know, the, the image processing, the uh, photogrammetry, the measurement from photographs, and the comparison process, as I said 20 years ago when I was challenged in court, I can't think of any better job, any better uh, graduate program that could have prepared me to do my job than geological sciences. Well, I have to tell you that, you know, I know Doug and I share an interest in astronomy, and I was not expecting that answer at all. Yeah. I'm so <laughs> to hijack this whole show into a discussion of um, <laughs> examining planets, but instead, which we would love to do, but well, that'll be an, that'll be another show. There you go. We'll do that another time. Um, so let's talk about um, actually being at the the FBI and tell us about your main duties in your position. 
So, so as I mentioned at first, so yes, I am a senior photographic technologist. Let me let me talk about that photographic technologist position first, um, because I have risen through the ranks. Uh, and and as I said, what what the photographic technologists at the FBI do is they analyze images and videos um, to try and help out with the forensic process. So. I mentioned a few of the things that, that we do. We enhance images. Um, I, I had a case uh, back in the early aughts um, where we had a, a fingerprint on the skin of a victim. Uh, it was somebody, a serial killer, uh, had uh, um, committed a homicide, and they actually found a fingerprint, a bloody fingerprint, on this victim's thigh. Uh, but the fingerprint technologists, they, they weren't able to lift the print and make a comparison because the texture of the skin uh, was preventing them from seeing the ridge detail. Well, I w as in my role as a photographic technologist, I was able to use some advanced image processing techniques, uh, things like fast Fourier transforms, to, to remove that background pattern and make it possible for the fingerprint examiner to see that fingerprint. And so mm. that type of image processing or enhancement is one of the things that a photographic technologist does. Another thing that we do, and, and this is the bulk of our time, I guess, would be photographic comparisons. So again, facial comparison is one aspect of the type of comparisons that we do. But as I said, we get a lot of cases in which you get clothing, uh, or you may have vehicles. You may have a, a surveillance image where you see a vehicle leaving a scene, and we're asked, what type of vehicle was that? Uh, in some cases, you have enough resolution that you can say, hey, we've got an actual vehicle that has some dents or it has some bumper stickers. Can you see those details in this surveillance image to be able to say that, hey, not only is that the same make and model, but it's actually the same vehicle? And in, you know, in the, the holy grail of cases is, can you see the license plate and actually read the license plate, right? So, so those types of comparison are another aspect. I also mentioned the, the bank robber height determination. Uh, that's something we do a lot, but, but nowadays with, with surveillance cameras being everywhere, we're finding we get photogrammetry cases, and, and photogrammetry is a, is a word I love to use all the time. Um, I had, a, I had something of a classical education, and, and many people in your audience may be familiar with, with the origin of that term, but photo light and, you know, grammetry isn't really the word, but metrics, measuring with light is what photogrammetry means. And so hmm. we don't just do height determinations, but we, in, with, with um, surveillance video, we can also do speed determinations. So we've found uh, in recent years we're getting cases where uh, people want to know how fast was the car moving. Uh, you know, they may have been exceeding the speed limit, and they're looking for some scientific proof from the video that, that they were, in fact, speeding. So that type of analysis is, is another thing that a photographic technologist will do. Um, and then the, the last thing, the one area I haven't touched on yet, is authentication. Uh, and this is becoming harder and harder. We're basically talking about is it a real or is it a computer-generated image or video, or has it been manipulated in some way? 
and that's that is is uh, something where we're constantly fighting a battle to keep up with technology because certainly digital image processing is getting to the point where we can we can determine that uh, or we can we can create a photograph that is almost impossible to detect that it's a that it's a fake and in some cases it may not even be possible to determine that it's a fake so uh, that's that's one area where uh, we really uh, face some challenges but those are the type of things that that we frequently get asked about and the the um, um, well, I think I better just stop there. <laughs> I imagine that's a huge problem. Well, since Jan and I can never let go of anything space, do you happen to know? Do you happen to know Dr. David Hathaway down at uh, Marshall? I do not. Uh, he's a, he was he's their um, solar imaging guy down there and helped with the Visar system. I thought y'all might know each other. Ah, okay, I know the Visar system. Yeah. yeah, good. He was one of the co-developers of it. Good, good man. Actually, he appeared in one of my books. I changed his name to Doctor Wendell Volick for my book Stress Fracture, and he loved it. But he's such <laughs> a great guy. Well, let's talk about well, facial re- recognition. Everybody's heard the term, but what exactly is that? Well, so so nowadays when we talk about facial recognition, we generally are talking about computer computerized or automated facial recognition. I mean, when you when you think about it, when you stop and think about it, human beings and and even not even just human beings, but lots of living things, you, from the moment they're born, they're we're programmed to actually f- seek out faces and recognize the faces of those we know and love, right? So, you know, it just made me think about birds imprinting on the first creature they see, you know, the the little, the chick that hatches and it'll follow around whatever it sees first. But with, with facial recognition in humans, we're talking about, you know, the ability of people that after, you know, years of exposure to individuals, you come to know them, you recognize them. We make this this distinction that recognition is kind of a holistic process. Uh, you know, so so I don't I don't know if either one of you have children, but it you probably don't have to look at their eyes, nose, mouth, and ears to say, yeah, that's my kid. Uh, it, in the way that when we do a, a manual facial recognition or facial comparison, uh, we do it. You you know that person because you've lived with them all your life or all their life, and and you just have an innate sense of what they are. That's not what we're talking about here. With facial recognition now in the in the middle of the second decade of the 21st century, we tend to talk about automated facial recognition. And this is the process whereby we're trying to get computers to determine are you, do you have the same face in two different images or don't you? Or if you have a single photograph of a face, can you find a potential match to that face within a gallery that you're holding? And so that's what we're talking about when we, when we talk about facial recognition today in this context. Can a computer tell us is there a match to that face somewhere in a gallery or does it match to a certain degree uh, a face that we're presenting it with so an an image capturing device lens whatever 
captures an image for a computer and our eyes capture it for our brains. How does the the human brain process? You mentioned holistically, but I mean on another level, how how does the human brain uh, process that information versus how a computer would actually go about dissecting that image and making sense of it? Wow, uh, that's. You know, that, that's... <laughs> I've never I've never been asked to go into that level of depth on what how a human being does it, Doug. So I'm gonna I'm gonna deflect that question and, and run away from it and just tell you about how the computer does it. Okay. So so the computer is only as good as the training that it gets and how it's how it basically practices on how it's gonna determine uh whether a face matches or not. And so it's it's basically pattern matching, um, and and by pattern matching, you have to think about there's a there's so many different ways that uh, computers can try to slice and dice a face and break it up into patterns that we generally try to talk about. There's there's a three step process basically. Well, first thing you have to do is find a face. And the, the most successful face recognition algorithms today, um, ha you have to actually be able to see two eyes or identify the place where two eyes should be um, because it wants to be able to look at the face from a front-on view. All of the best face recognition app, uh, algorithms today uh, do what's called normalization. And they, they take a face image once they've figured out that they've got a face, and as I said, that requires seeing two eyes, it tries to turn that face so that it's straight on. Once you've got that face straight on, then the computer algorithm is going to try to break out three different types of patterns. The first pattern is the overall shape of the face. So is it a round face? Is it a square face? Is it thinner on the bottom and it's thicker on the top, they're wider on the top. Is it a long face? Is it a short face? So that's that's the overall shape. The second thing it does, and this is where this is where facial recognition for computers really starts to get separated from how human beings look at faces, is it's going to start to look at the face in patches. What's the distribution of highlights and shadows on the face? And what are, the, what are the patterns that each of those patches show? So you can kind of think of the, the left eye being one patch area where there might be a strong shadow if someone's um, brow ridge really hangs over. Or it might not be such a deep shadow if, they're, if their eyes bulge out. And so you've got that for the left eye, the right eye, the nose area, the mouth area. These patches... Um, are all kind of analyzed independently, and if one, if only one of those areas has a really strong signature that matches to that area on another face, then that may be all the algorithm needs to say, hey, I've got a possible match here. The third type of pattern that is being looked at is really more the the um, texture of the skin, the roughness of the skin within patches across the face. So it's, it's kind of at a different 
resolution, if you will, than the, the big patches that I was talking about before. So it's kind of the, the facial roughness uh, that's being looked at. So if you, if you take a step back and you think about the very first thing that I described to you, the shape, the overall shape of the face, um, I think your listeners uh, and you will will get a better sense of how significant that is if you think about 15, 20 years ago, we all heard about how face recognition was coming everywhere, right? Um, and one of the first places that people were really anxious to have face recognition and that it was deployed at first was in casinos. Now, I've been in... I've been in quite a few casinos in my time, um, mostly for casework, but not all the time. But uh, tell me, me, Doug or Jan, where are most of the cameras in a casino? I don't know anything about whether you've actually been in casinos yourself, but but can you tell me where you think most of those cameras are? I'd guess they're the tables. And in the ceiling. Over the tables, in the ceiling, exactly. So I want to ask you, if you have a camera looking down from the ceiling at people who are walking along, are you going to be looking at the front of their faces in a straight-on view? No. I guess no, this it's... is where male pattern baldness is the only thing that can help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's, we'll leave that one aside. You don't want to lose any uh, listeners. But, but so you, the fact that those cameras are up in the ceiling it means that the the shape of your face is going to be relatively distorted, right? Right. So it's not it's not going to be a nice if you started with a nice oval face uh and you're walking horizontally and a camera up in the ceiling is looking down at you, that oval is going to be squashed. Okay? And so that pattern matching of trying to get an oval match to a squash doesn't work very well. And that explains why, despite the early adoption of face recognition at casinos, it was a disaster because it couldn't work that way. So what's happened is people, when we, when we try to advise uh, organizations that are interested in using face recognition, and in fact, we have a, we have a um, great video that's available online. It's called FBI Caught on Camera uh, that explains to the owners of places like casinos or uh, um, convenience stores or banks. It tells them how they should set up their cameras so that they can get photos that are good uh, for face recognition and for other purposes of identification. Um, We tell them you set your cameras lower so that you can get a good straight-on view uh, of people's faces. And uh, that, as I say, if you, if you go on YouTube and do a search for FBI caught on camera, make sure you get the FBI in there. Um, FBI caught on camera, uh, we have a very nicely produced video that, that shows how people should install their CCTV systems to get good quality images. And it's, it's focused a bit on getting those good face recognition quality images. We will definitely be sure to um, put that link on our site. So absolutely, find it <laughs> after the show. So, so, so we.
have you know some understanding now of what the computer is looking for, but um, when it comes into the whole automated uh, comparison of of images, how does that work on a you know not to get too too technical, but a sort of somewhat technical level? How is that part of it working? What's it what's it doing to, to okay, match so things up? Yeah, so so I've used this term pattern a lot, um, and and computers, of course, are really good at doing a lot of calculations fast. And the simpler the task, the faster the the calculations can go. And so when you think about images that we're dealing with today, we're we're talking about digital images, right? So digital images are effectively two-dimensional arrays of pixels that have a brightness associated with them. And this is, this is an important thing to point out. Um, face recognition today does not rely upon color information. Uh, all of the face recognition matching is done in grayscale, okay, so black and white images, because you just can't rely on different cameras to get the same color space that you might have. And also, the color of people's faces changes from time to time. Um, you know, you can get sunburn, uh, you can go pale. But when you when we go back to this issue of the the pixels, and we've got this array, you, this array of of horizontal and vertical pixels. If you look at a digital image, and it doesn't have to be a face; it's just any digital image. You've basically got this grid where you have individual pixels of a given brightness. And you can kind of think about it as like a checkerboard. So on a checkerboard, you've got the, the light squares and you've got the dark squares. And if you have an 8 by 8 grid of pixels, uh, then there are 64 different pixels on that grid. And the computer actually wants to analyze that 8x8 eight eight grid, and let's see, there's 8 squared is 64, right? But if you have 256 brightness values uh, that are possible in any one pixel, then you've got 64 times 256, um, and then all of the possible variations, that, that checkerboard pattern where you go light, dark, light, dark, light, dark, it could be light, 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 dark, 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 or it could be light, light, dark, dark, light, light, dark, dark. You, you can think about how quickly those patterns of light and dark can vary within just an 8 by 8 pixel array. And it's those patterns across individual areas within an image uh, where you might have not just one 8 by 8 array of pixels, but you've got eight times eight, eight by eight arrays. And the variety that you get across those um, different pixels, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm really getting a bit too far down in the weeds for this, but you can imagine how, uh, let's, just, let's just keep it simple then. If you have a cross shape, across that 8 by 8 pixels, and you have an X shape 
across the pixels. So from the upper left corner to the lower right corner and the upper right corner to the lower left corner. Those, that X and the cross shape are two different types of patterns uh, that you can create from just that 8x8 array of pixels. And you might be able to have a very bright X if all of those pixels that are from the upper left to the lower right are very bright. Or you might have a relatively dim X where it's only uh, barely brighter than the surrounding dark pixels. Those are the type of patterns that the computer can try to identify as being present within uh, a given facial image. And if it finds those patterns that are really strong on that given face, it's going to save that and make that pattern part of the template that it's going to use later for comparison purposes. And I'm happy to try and explain that further, but I think we might we might just be chasing <laughs> rabbit down holes if we go any further on that. Hmm. Now, it, it lets us know that this is getting down to a very, very, you know, minuscule level in an image and comparing it with another little tiny part of that as well. Um, so um, how long has this been around, the, the automatic computer-based, facial recognition? Well, so the the real um, start to the what I would call the modern era of facial recognition was back in the early 90s. And we have the National Institute of Standards and Technology to thank for that. And there's a, there's a fellow who works over there by the name of Dr. Jonathan Phillips. Um, and the, the, the U.S. population and, and the community of face recognition um, developers around the world really owe Jonathan Phillips a great debt uh, for the work that he started then, and he's continued to this day, he's someone I work with uh, on a regular basis. Um, he started a program back then that was called Ferret, and it was a look at face recognition technology. And as part of this uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology program, uh, they have been setting up two different types of um, test scenarios. They're either called challenges or they're called vendor tests. And in a challenge, uh, NIST makes available a set of data that is ground-truthed. Uh, and by that I mean you, you basically are given a take-home test where you have the answers. And they make this data available to anybody who wants to work on it and says, here's a set of face recognition data. Here's a bunch of faces that are matches, and here are a bunch of faces that aren't matches. You take that data back, and you see how well you can develop an automatic algorithm to solve this problem, to correctly identify when you have a match and correctly identify when you don't have a match. And so that program started in 1994. And it, um, the very best results that came out of that particular uh, challenge program, uh, and I, I, forgive me, that was actually a test program. Um, in the test program, uh, so I mentioned the challenge program is kind of a take-home test. In a vendor test or a test, uh, the data is actually held at NIST, and the people that are developing the algorithms 
submit those to NIST, who then runs their sequestered data on that, and they publish the results. And so it really is an independent test of how well is the technology doing. And so back in 1994, in this ferret test, the very best algorithm was not actually fully automated. It was a semi-automated algorithm. Uh, and it was based on a technique that's called photoanthropometry. So there's that photo word again, light. In this case, anthropometry is measuring people. And, and in this case, you were basically marking the position of features on the face like the corners of the eyes. So you'd actually say where in this photograph is the left outer corner, the outer corner of the left eye. Where's the inner corner of the left eye? The outer corner of the right eye? Where's the tip of the nose? Where are the corners of the mouth? And you had to manually mark where those things were. And you then tried to compare those features that were extracted from those measurements against the, the true matches and against the false matches. And I'm going to ask you, how well do you think that approach did? <laughs> Probably not well. No, and and not very well at all. And I, I need to I need to kind of explain at a baseline level how these um, scores are compared from one time to another. And so, face recognition scores and matching is done based on what's called a threshold system. Um, there is no intrinsic uh, underlying metric that you can use to define how close one face is to another. Um, you basically have to take a lot of data, uh, a lot of data where you've got true matches and a lot of data where you have false matches, and use your algorithm to see what your match scores look like uh, when you have true matches and see what your match scores look like when you have false matches okay, or not matches, and you have to kind of see where the scores, what's above what score level do you get to where you're going to have a quote-unquote acceptable level of error. And so the, the I, I use that term acceptable level of error. That's probably a misstatement. It's really more what is the error rate that you're going to define the match rate against. So for these tests that NIST has set up and has continued to this very day and is continuing even as we speak, um, the, the common rate of error is 1 in 1,000. And by 1 in 1,000, I mean one time in 1,000, I'm going to provide you with a pair of images that are not a true match. Okay, so I'm going to prevent, I'm going to prevent, provide to this algorithm, I've got a picture of Doug and I've got a picture of Jan. And one time in a thousand, the algorithm is going to tell me that's the same person. Okay? So when you use that metric of how often does the algorithm say a false match is a match, one time in a thousand, back in 1994, using that measurement-based system, true matches were only correctly made 20% of the time. Mm. 
So, so 1994, the state-of-the-art in face recognition, you only got true match was correctly identified one time out of five when one time in a thousand it would say you've got a match. So if you jump ahead, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that's a huge improvement. Huge. Well, obviously. if you uh, – go ahead, Doug, sorry. Now, well, obviously things have changed dramatically since you started all this until present day. But, I mean, if you watch movies or TV or something, computers perform these things like, wow, right on the money, and they do it in a matter of seconds, and it's correct, and it's, they even give a hologram in the person's address <laughs> and their DNA profile, you know. <laughs> I mean, how, how rapidly and, and how effective is this in real time, in real life? Yeah, so, so today the, the latest results uh, for photographs that are mugshot quality, so good quality photos, now uh, it does better than, whereas the error rate back in 94 was 80%, now the error rate is at about three-tenths of 1% for those good quality photos, okay, for mugshot photos where, where you're looking straight on at the camera. And so, uh, again, that's three times, uh, three-tenths of a percent is three times in a thousand when you have good quality mug shots, the match isn't going to happen, even though it should happen. And that's, at, that's when you've set your threshold to say, okay, one time in a thousand, we're going to get a, a threshold that says there's a match when there isn't. So, so if, you, if you have an image and you plug it in and you have a database, does this comparison happen fairly quickly? Oh yes, it's it's yeah. it can happen almost instantaneously. You okay. don't have to you don't have to wait around long. Like I like uh, fingerprints, they can fly through tens yep. of thousands very quickly. Yeah, and millions. We can yeah. we can actually uh, do searches uh, in in fractions of seconds. So if we look at a group of people, you know, a football stadium or a uh, airport or any time there's a gathering of a bunch of people and we have the system set up to capture images of these people flowing in and flowing out, if you have someone you're looking for, can you actually find that person in that crowd? Well, now, so Doug, you, you've <laughs> actually you've described two different scenarios. Here. Right. Okay. So, so we the first thing I think of with the football stadium is is you've got the big crowd shot. Uh, where you may have thousands of people in a single frame. Trying to do face recognition on a photo like that is going to take a lot of time uh, because if we, if we step back and think about the process, you've got to find every face, you've got to extract every face, and then you've got to go and compare it. Okay? So when I say we can search faces in a fraction of a second, right. um, that's, that's I have one face and I'm searching against a fixed gallery. So, so I'm not going to... I'm going to say that that, that 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 big scanning the crowd kind of thing, that's going to be a challenge. Right. Okay. If, on the other hand, you've got a scenario where you are, and at the FBI we are very big on making sure we have the legal authority to do things, okay? So in a, a situation like the Super Bowl, say, uh, you could set up cameras at every turnstile and just have one camera per turnstile. And at the rate at which people come through now, uh, you could 
effectively try to match uh, every person that's going through the turnstile um, on every camera, you know, one at a time if each of those cameras is connected to its own search system. That could probably be done in real time. Okay. That's pretty impressive. Now the accuracy, the, the important thing, the important thing to, to follow up on that is that recognize that no result that you get from that type of matching is going to be automatically validated. The computer is not good enough to say that. We don't want, you know, think about it. I'm, I, I just told you about one time in a thousand, two different people are going to be matched. Do we want to be sending an innocent person to jail or have some aggressive action taken against them one time in a thousand because of face recognition? No, we don't. So as it currently stands, you have to have human review of any result that comes out of something like that. So there are limitations. Uh, oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, the limitations, I mean, the, I've, I frequently talk to, to uh, students in graduate programs and in college and in high school and even lower. And I say, if any of you want to have a full-time career uh, on a problem that's going to be hard to solve and will always be there over the course of your career, go into face recognition. Um, I told you about this really, this one in a thousand error rate. That's for mugshot quality. That's for high quality photographs with good lighting. Uh, the number of limitations that we have in face recognition really come down to something that we refer to as a pi. So that's alpha, uh, what's, what's P? I don't even remember what, A-P-I-E, okay? Age, pose, illumination, and expression. Those are the major confounding factors that are a problem for face recognition. So, so first of all, let me, just, let me just start off and say, let's not even try to talk about matching a child's face to their face as an adult. Um, the number of structural changes that happen when you go from being two or three years old or even 10 or 12 years old to being an adult, those remain challenges that are going to be very, very hard to deal with uh, for decades to come. Um, on top of that, we then have the, the problem of adult aging. So you go from 20 years old to when you're 50 years old or 70 years old. Those faces change an awful lot. And so that is an area that's, that's always going to be a problem for us. Well, it's, it, it is a problem for us today, and maybe there's some very smart people out there in your audience who are going to figure out how to solve this in, in 10 or 20 years. Uh, I hope they can get to it faster than that. Um, so aging is, is one of the limitations that we have. Pose is another one. I already have I've already discussed this to some extent. Pose refers to the angle at which the face is presented relative to the camera. So those cameras up in the ceiling of the casinos. Um, the the big improvements in face recognition over the last 20 years, where we've gone from 80% error rate to under 1% error rate, that all comes down to being able to correct for pose. So let me, let me just talk briefly about how those algorithm developers have actually improved on pose. Um, 
because that really is a great success story. So if you think about it, the, the, the pose problem that's been corrected is not the ceiling camera problem. It's actually the, the head being turned to the left or right problem that's been solved. So you can think about if I turn, if, if you're looking at me and I turn my face one side or the other, you'll see that my nose goes off to the side. Um, something that was figured out pretty early in the mid-90s was that by measuring the distance between the eyes, the distance between the pupils, and then drawing a straight line down and seeing how far off that center line the tip of the nose was, you could estimate the angle at which the head was turned. And once you've got that angle at which the head is turned, you can start to correct that pose by doing a variety of image processing techniques. And you can, you can think about this as, at first, they treated the facial image as just like a flat picture or a flat surface, a flat plane. And you can think about if you have a door that's a flat plane. If you open that door towards you, and then and take a few steps back, you'll notice that the side of the door that's closer to you appears taller than the side that's farther away, simply because it's closer, right? So you, so you don't have a rectangular door. You have a, uh, a parallelogram door, a parallel pipette. Well, by measuring that angle, you can correct for that angle by doing a simple image transformation so that it looks like that face is front on. And that's where you got the first great improvement in face recognition from 80% error to 50% error. And that happened around in, the, in about five years. Hmm. From 2000 to 2010, the algorithm developers figured out that, hey, a face isn't a flat surface. It's actually a curved surface. So they first started treating the face like a ball, like a sphere. And so they did this same correction, knowing that the face is more shaped like a ball than it is like a flat pa panel. And that's where you got your, your increase from 50% down to 30% error. And then the real breakthrough was when they started treating faces like faces. And they had models of what people's faces would be shaped like. And so they were able to drape the photograph over these 3D models of what a generic face should look like and make that correction. And once you get to that point, that's where you start to get down to the under 10%, under 5% error, because you've been able to turn that face to a front-on view and correct for those, that pose problem. Now, another piece of that then, so then we get to the illumination problem, the lighting problem. Lighting, you recall I've talked about these patches of light and dark. Well, patches of light and dark can occur on the face for two main reasons. One, your face actually has different patches of light and dark on it. Okay, you may have light patches or you may have dark patches. Or it could actually be the light that's illuminating your face is casting shadows or is causing highlights to come back to the camera. Those highlights and shadows can be analyzed in many in most of the computer algorithms to determine if they actually are shadows or highlights or whether they're actually just parts of the face so if you if you found where the eyes are and you know where the nose is 
and you can see a dark patch underneath the nose, you may be able to say, hey, there's lighting that's causing that. That's actually a shadow. And you can use that as a clue to tell you where the light's coming from. And that way you can begin to back out what part of this pattern that we're seeing is really just light being reflected or hidden by shadows, and what part is actually pattern that's on the face itself. And so that illumination factor is something that, that is a pretty well-addressed issue today. So, the, so illumination is probably the best handled of the A-pi effects, but there's still work that has to be done. And then finally, we come to expression. So, so I'm going to ask you and your, your listeners another, another quiz right now, and that is which do you think is easier to match or is going to have a higher match rate? Pictures of, of the same person in a neutral expression or pictures of the same person when they're smiling? Got any thoughts? Remember what I thought, before you answer, before you answer, remember what I said about the patches yeah. and seeing patches of dark, of light and shadows. Yeah, I would think smiling would offer more points of identity than just a neutral face. Yeah. But I could be wrong. <laughs> Jan, what? you want to you want to agree with him or you want to disagree with him? You got you, you know I'm gonna you, yeah, you could I mean, go the other way and we'll have one we'll have one sure answer that's right or you could yeah. you could agree with him. <laughs> well, the the you know I, I'm I'm sort of thinking each way, but I guess I guess I kind of have to go with what Doug's saying that you'll have more surfaces. You know, giving off light. You guys, you, you guys nailed it. Yeah, <laughs> smiling is a lot easier to match than than neutral, uh, and the reason is exactly that. When you smile, you create more of these creases on your face that are going to be unique sets of lines, dark and dark and bright patches. Uh, and so, even though you know, it, it, it's kind of a conundrum, isn't it? That you you would hear about driver's license agencies saying, "Don't smile." Um, because we want to be able to use your, your image for face matching, right? Well, the, the fact of the matter is, is that if you get in a situation where your face is going to be used for face matching, uh, from a criminal justice perspective, you probably aren't going to be smiling, are you? No. <laughs> well, I do remember stories that when they first used photography at all to photograph criminals, they quickly, the criminals quickly realized that they should make grimaces. <laughs> Play the role, exactly. If you look at those 1,800, you know, photographs, these guys are making it's the weirdest faces. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, obviously Hollywood is way ahead of you guys. Uh, <laughs> so what, what, are the, what are the biggest myths out there uh, that people should know about facial recognition? What are the, what are the things that just flat aren't true? Well, so the the very first one is is that anybody in a position of responsibility is letting a computer make a decision based on face recognition alone. The technology is not good enough for that. Uh, you have to have a human being review the results, unless you're unless you're willing to to accept 
the risks associated with being wrong. So, for example, you know, you can you can get any one of a number of apps on your phone to use face recognition to to unlock your mobile phone, okay, or lock your mobile phone or unlock it. Um, you know, that's the sort of situation where you know, I I own my phone. The chances of somebody stealing it, whose face is going to look like mine, and and be able to open my phone is is probably very small. So so that sort of situation where you're going to let the the system control it is acceptable. But in law enforcement applications or intelligence applications, we can't afford uh, to to identify innocent people, uh, not just because of you know the the fact that it's wrong to identify to misidentify innocent people but we need to get the right people right we want to be sure we get the right person so so it, there are not uh we're not we're not letting the computers make these decisions for us it's a great source of investigative leads but that that number one myth is that people seem to think that the computers are making the decisions with face recognition and they're not. So is is face recognition admissible in court? So so face recognition on its own would not be admissible in court. Uh the results of a face recognition search in which someone is identified as a potential candidate and a human being then says, "Hey, I think this is that person." That is certainly admissible in court. So as an investigative tool, uh, the use of face recognition is widely accepted. I, I remember talking to one of, the, one of my colleagues down in uh, Florida uh, where uh, the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office actually has been one of the most forward-leaning organizations with using face recognition. And uh, early, you know, 10 years ago, we were visiting with them and seeing how they were implementing it. And, and they generally speaking, would go into court. Uh, they would have a situation where they had the photograph of from their, their mugshot gallery against which a live image had been taken. So they had, they had officers on the street uh, who would uh, you know, ask if they could take a photo of someone that they were talking to uh, who perhaps didn't offer sufficient uh, identification. Um, they would they would use their system, which was connected back to their database in their you know they would take a photograph, upload it to their system, and get a result back and They would take those two images into court and show the judge and say, "Your honor, here's the photograph we took when we stopped this person on the street, and here's the photograph that we identified it as it matching to in our gallery and The judge would look at the two photos and say, "Yeah, it's the same guy." Um, and that level of of challenge basically has been the the primary source of challenge, uh, and and it's it's gone away uh, to some extent because it basically comes down to when you show those two photos, um, rarely do you have to get someone who is an expert in one-to-one facial comparison to do that. Of course, we're we're finding that we do have to do that more and more uh, simply because facial, facial recognition is increasing the number of opportunities where, where this type of evidence is actually going to be admitted into court. 
Well, Facebook, anybody who's on it and has been tagged um, knows about their facial recognition program. Is it is it better than the one that's being used by the FBI? We've we've heard claims to that effect. Is that true? Yeah. So so first of all, let's let's. I am going to parse that question a little bit, uh, guys, just because um, it merits it. Um, to my knowledge, there has never been a direct comparison of the Facebook algorithms against any of the algorithms that we may or may not use at the FBI. So the, the NIST testing that I talked about before, mm-hmm. uh, Facebook and, you know, and other social media companies like Google, um, they have not submitted their algorithms to NIST to be tested. Uh, I'd love to see it done, uh, but uh, at this point, uh, they haven't been playing in that space. So so we can't say with a scientific degree of certainty, uh, although I have to say that that term, scientific degree of certainty, is actually not um, supported anymore in the forensic community, but that's another show. Um, (laughs) it, it hasn't been, it hasn't been proven. Uh, it hasn't, it hasn't been tested in an apples to apples way. Now I will say this, you, you mentioned, you know, the tagging, um, Facebook and other social media companies are dealing in a very restricted space when they're doing the matching and trying to say, is this you or isn't it you? Um, uh, because you generally are not interfacing with, Seven billion people on the planet are you, or even the, you know the the tens of millions of people that might be in a law enforcement database. You're dealing typically with a small circle of friends, and the cost of them being wrong. Hey, we tagged this photo. We think it's you. You know what's you you might turn that feature off if they start sending you pictures of of people that. Um, you don't know or or people whose looks you don't like <laughs> you know? yeah. um but but I will say this to their i i will you know i I've, I've been kind of um dismissive um by no means am I dismissive of the technology that they've been developing because they actually um are at the cutting edge of of um face recognition and improving. Uh, the quality of it. All of the the talk about the algorithms that I've done before and the pattern matching, all of that really is pre-2015 technology, okay? So that's two-year-old technology that we're talking about. In the last couple of years, um, the area of of deep learning and convolutional neural networks uh, and has really taken off in computer vision and it's beginning to affect the face recognition community. And Facebook and Google with their face recognition are actually, they have actually implemented um, this deep learning. And, and the critical thing to, to understand about deep learning is that it depends on having lots and lots of data. And if there's one thing that social media companies like Facebook have, it's lots and lots of data. And so when Facebook talks about their great face recognition technology, the reason they have great face recognition technology is that they have been able to take about a thousand people 
Okay, so within when you sign up for Facebook and you sign the agreement, the terms of agreement, they can use the data that you provide them uh, for their own development purposes. And one of the things that they're using it for is face recognition improvement. And when they have a thousand photographs of one person, they can use this deep learning technique to really understand what your face looks like from every possible angle. So the, the traditional approach to uh, doing algorithm development for face recognition has been to have these data sets. You might have, at best, 10 or 15 photographs of a single subject. Okay, so the algorithms that I described earlier are based on having that ground truth sets where any one individual, you only have, you know, maybe a dozen, maybe two dozen photographs of a single subject. Those, that, that kind of space, two dozen photographs, is not really going to encompass the entire range of images that your face could be reflected in. So all of those A-pi, you know, age, pose, illumination, expression, if you've got instead a thousand photographs of you, then the computer, the deep learning, you know, the, the deep convolutional neural networks can find a lot more patterns that are going to be consistent in your face across pictures. So, so with, with the Facebook face recognition, you've got a thousand pictures of a thousand different people that really is a quantum leap in improvement in technology. And I've got to say that I'm really pleased to be uh, involved with uh, another government agency that's called IARPA, uh, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. Um, you can go and learn more about IARPA at IARPA.gov. Um, they are uh, maybe some of maybe you and and some of your listeners are familiar with DARPA, the Defense Advanced right, Research exactly. Project Activity. Yeah, so IARPA is just DARPA for the intelligence community. Um, they've got a program called Janus now, uh, and I'm helping to to serve on the government advisory panel for that, which has a number three different teams who are working on cutting edge face recognition, and all of them are using deep learning. Uh, as a way to attack this problem of getting better face recognition, so um, there's a lot of there's a lot of potential there uh, and a lot of hope, and it's it's not just in face recognition that deep learning is being used, but it's certainly an area that um, we could see some immediate benefits from. Well, so, Richard, I'm sad to say we've run out of time. Uh, there's so much more I want to talk about, yeah. <laughs> but the time flies, doesn't it, when you're having fun? Um, I'm sorry. I, I no. Maybe you, I'll come no. back some other time. Absolutely, you've given us a million things it. to think about. It's just great. Um, and as our listeners know, uh, the the show is always archived. You can listen to it any time. There'll be links and uh, Richard's bio and a bunch of other stuff on the websites at the uh, CrimeAndScienceRadio.com and at my website. And uh, Look all that up. Richard, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely loved it. Thank you, Richard. You're welcome.